0: Well, good morning. As I dismiss our kids out this back door over here where Miss Joanna is at and Clay is over at, I have a question for you. That question is, aren't you glad for stories like that, that we just watched? Aren't you glad that on Friday, when Jesus was crucified, it wasn't over? Aren't you glad for that? Just three days later, Jesus would defeat death and be resurrected from the grave? Well, with that question that I ask, aren't you glad that for stories like that, I have a second question. As we look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I have this question for you, and that is this. What does the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have to do with your life? What does the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have to do with your life? The answer is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Everything. The answer is everything. And a second question, or even one more question on top of that, maybe you saw it on our Facebook page or on our Instagram, it is this, what does it mean to live a life, the good life we've been talking about, shaped by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? What does it mean to live that life that is shaped by him? See, according to Jesus, living the good life is different than what culture is going to tell us. As we're moving through the Sermon on the Mount, I I want to just remind you that every topic that Jesus is talking about in this Sermon on the Mount needs to be filtered through this question. It needs to be seen through this question, what does it mean for us to live a life shaped by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And the answer is actually found in the book of Mark chapter 8, verse 34, as well as Luke chapter 9, verse 23. They're actually identical verses with this one small word that is different. And you know what these two verses tell us? It's this. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me, and Mark adds, and the gospel, will save it. That's why I answer everything to that first question. What does it, the death of Jesus' burial and, and resurrection do to affect and change our lives? What does it mean for us to live a life shaped by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? What it means is, is everything changes. It means that we are no longer living for ourselves. It means that we aren't about ourselves. See, none of this life is about us. Contrary to what the culture may tell you, as we've talked about with Jesus, he has flipped that thinking. None of this is about us. It's all about giving glory to God and the lives we've been given point to him. See, kingdom living is upside down living. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount's about. It's about upside-down living. From everything the culture is going to tell you, it's pretty much the opposite. That's why Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, the blessed are, and he lays it out. And We talked about throughout the summer, we called that summer series Flipped because it's completely flipped thinking. That flipped way of thinking leads to true blessing. That flipped way of living leads to true blessing. And of course, Jesus also said it's going to lead to Persecution. It's kind of how we wrapped up those beatitudes because people they don't want different that's the truth of the matter they don't want to change they don't want you challenging societal norms they don't want that they want you to fall in line with majority rule but jesus said you know what be different be different and when you are different when you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth things are going to change you are going to be a part of changing this world For the better and then he reminds his audience he says but it's not just about us doing things on the outside not just following some external rules he goes on from there and says that's not going to change things what's going to change things is a heart a heart change he says you're being taught right now different things through man's interpretation of god's laws Man's lessening of God's laws. But he says, I want you to see it for what it is. I want you to see it without a filter. To the Pharisees of the day were singing and teaching, don't do that. Or do this. And in the process, Jesus says, it's not just those outward actions. It's got to be a heart just behind those outward actions. He's basically saying, if you're trying to earn righteousness by being good in front of others, you're missing it. Basically, he says, It's like trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. It really doesn't matter what they look like because that ship is still going down. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. And he's saying that about our lives as well. And then he goes into the details of all these misinterpretations of the day. The Pharisees have been teaching this way and Jesus is correcting their teaching and their thinking. And this is where we found ourselves in the last couple of weeks where Jesus says, You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, murder. But I tell you, it goes deeper. There's a root issue. There's a heart issue. And it goes deeper than murder. It is bitterness and anger in your heart. You need a changed heart, not just to not murder. He says, you heard it said, don't commit adultery. But the heart of the matter, the root cause is deeper than adultery. It's about lust that is in our heart. You need a changed heart. And only a changed heart is going to do it. And the only way you can have a changed heart be made new is through Jesus Christ. We can't try harder. That is how we live the good life. Is by following after Jesus Christ. That's how that death, burial, and resurrection change our hearts and change our minds and change our lives. Because he gives us a new one. A new heart, new hopes, new dreams, new goals, new passions. That's what Jesus does for us. And I tell you all that because it leads to today's passage. Today's passage is not an easy one. As a matter of fact, knowing that this was our fall kickoff, and I'm trying to get people to invite friends, I'm like, man, maybe we should skip this one today. Because nobody wants to invite their friends to talk about and hear about what we're talking about today. But I said, really I can't skip till next week either, because next week's probably just about as hard. So I said, God has put it in this path. He's got a reason for it. So let's move with it as we do this. And the reason why this is such a hard topic is because the one that Jesus speaks on that we're going to look at today, I think touches every person in this room in some way, shape, or form. It touches every person. And to let you know, the passage today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. If you want to open up there, you can. But the topic is divorce. Now, when you say the word divorce, it's kind of like in the Lion King when they say Mufasa. Everybody kind of shudders just a little bit because it does truly affect each and every one of us. And my guess is you've either been affected by it personally and you've had to go through the painful reality and endured that pain to walk through it. For others, maybe you're like me and you're a child of divorce. Others, maybe you've watched family members or friends or coworkers deal with Divorce. And some right now might be struggling through an incredibly dysfunctional marriage and the D word has been mentioned more than once. The truth is, is divorce is painful for people and it's incredibly destructive for society as a whole. We could go through all the stats about all the ways that divorce creates havoc in the lives of, of individuals as well as society, but unfortunately, I don't have to go through them because all you have to do is watch the news. Much of that is due to the breakdown of the family, And there's a couple of challenges that I found as I was preparing for this week. One, the Bible has a lot to say about marriage and has a lot to say about divorce. I couldn't fit it all into one sermon. So as I was going, one of the challenges is there's so many different legitimate approaches that I could take. The first legitimate approach I could take was I could make this sermon a warning. I could say marriage is sacred. Remember your vows. Jesus never encouraged divorce, so don't do it. I could say that. And the truth of the matter is if I were to say it, the, the weight of the Bible would be on my side. It wouldn't be something that would be out of line for me to say. But I could also use this sermon to say God's compassion for those who have been hurt in marriage or been left behind in marriage or those who have been sinned against in marriage. God has compassion for you and he, he is here for you. Another way I could take it in a different direction is encourage those who have sinned in divorce or have been sinned against or have sinned even in remarriage i could challenge you to repent because god's mercy and forgiveness is there for you i could also take a more theological approach and, and really try and explain the acceptable grounds for divorce and remarriage and ask questions like well are there any justifiable reasons for divorce if so what are they we could dive into that and you may uh, you may be able to get divorced under circumstances, but, but what are those circumstances? And people, they want to hear that. I mean, that's what the Pharisees were talking about as they were teaching. Because sometimes, we like to look at the Bible kind of like we do with our parents. We ask, what is the most I can do without getting in trouble? How far can I go? I mean, that, that was a teenage question in youth group I heard all the time. It had something to do with different than divorce, probably more like last week's. But th- that's, a, that's a whole other situation. How far can I go in this? And so all of these different ways, and really, honestly, I wish I had time to go deep pastorally, deep theologically in all these ways, but I can't, again, just in one sermon. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is, is preaching on this topic. There's so many different unique scenarios that don't lend themselves to easy answers. You can't come to me and say, "Well, what about this?" And I'd be like, "Oh, well, that's that." It's not that easy. It's not that fluid. And I know there are some of you in here that, are, that there aren't just listening for information. Maybe you heard what the topic was today and you truly wanted to hear if I think that God thinks that your divorce is acceptable, that your remarriage is acceptable or, or whatever it might be. Maybe that's what you're coming for. And these, these situations, I don't, don't think they'd be answered in a sermon. Maybe in a one-on-one conversation, maybe in on one-on-one counseling, in that way, but... It's not always clear right away until you have what is the correct counsel. And the final challenge is is this. If you've been affected by divorce, our discussion today will be filtered by how you were affected. You will see it through the filter that it is. I'm gonna ask you today to lower those filters because what I really want to do is I want to this morning talk about this that it's absolutely critical we truly understand what Jesus thinks about divorce. And even more so, I think it's absolutely critical that we see what he thinks about marriage. Because even though the word marriage is not found in our passage today, that is truly what this is about. That is truly the depth of what this is about. So if you have your Bibles open, Matthew chapter five, verses 31 and 32 is where we'll be reading. Let's read that together and then we'll dig a little deeper this morning says these words It was also said whoever divorces his wife wife must give her a written notice of divorce But I tell you everyone who divorces his wife except in the case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery That's a heavy two verses So let's pray that God speaks to us this morning Father we are grateful for who you are and we're grateful for what you continue to do how you continue to change hearts, how you continue to change minds, how you continue to change lives. And I pray this morning is no different. That we lower our filters for the way that we see things and instead see them for the way you want us to see them. We pray it in your name. Amen. So you may remember that a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus coming to the Pharisees and, and, to, and speaking on the, far, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount and he's speaking to his group of disciples and the crowd that's listening in. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but I instead came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it, and then he goes on from there to unpack some of the fullness of the misinterpreted laws that the Pharisees were teaching, and he really found two of them that he brought up first in the Ten Commandments, and that was murder and adultery. And as you see that begin to take, all of a sudden Jesus takes a left at Albuquerque, and for those of you guys who watched Looney Tunes growing up, you got that reference. He takes a left at Albuquerque. And as he takes that left at Albuquerque, he says these words. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Now if you know your Ten Commandments, guess what? That's not in there. Because he's not in the Ten Commandments anymore. Now he has moved to a teaching of Moses that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4. This is what that teaching says. What Moses had written, it says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If, after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled." Because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Now as we read that, this is what I want you to understand. The reason why I read it to you. Is that Jesus is not quoting that passage. Jesus is quoting how the Pharisees have interpreted that passage. Because again, the Pharisees were lowering the bar. They are the ones that want to make the hurdle easier to clear. They want to make it easier. And Jesus says, hang on just a second. Why are you doing that? Same thing with murder. Same thing with adultery. Now with divorce. So why would Jesus do that about divorce and marriage? Well, because the teaching of the day had made divorce normal. It had made divorce ordinary. It it had made divorce no big deal. And when you make divorce no big deal, you know what you also do? You make marriage no big deal. And that's a problem. And that was a problem for Jesus in that. And and as we begin to to look at that, when you lessen the institution of marriage that God has created and designed, that is a problem. And unfortunately, we still see it today. We see it today. The institution of marriage is a mess because cultural has lessened its importance. As a matter of fact, I found this... Passage in a book called How and When to Let Go. It gives worldly advice about marriage. Let me read for you. It says, Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital, searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, It's especially easy for two persons to grow apart. It goes on to say this. Letting go of your marriage, if it's no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting divorced can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. Now as I read that, that's painful. Because that is the view and the perfect example of culture's view on Marriage—that That is the heart of what they are saying, that the most important thing in marriage is you. It is self-fulfillment. That is what it's about. Let me be me. That way seems right to a person, especially in this country. But as Proverbs says, the way that seems right to a man leads to destruction. And that is what we have seen. Hopefully you do know the biblical picture of marriage is a lifetime union of one man and one woman. Did you know that divorce was never a part of God's plan? It was never a part of God's plan. It was an amazing picture of one man and one woman coming together in one flesh. One plus one equals one. That was the idea behind it all. We'll talk more about that here in a second. But if you go back to Deuteronomy, you need to realize why Moses would even make divorce an option. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about it. Uh, Pastor Bruce read it up front in Matthew 19. It's also found in Mark 10. But the reason that it is given as an option is because of man's hard heart. Because of the hardness of hearts. Because of their selfish, hardened heart that was about self-fulfillment. Moses says, here's a permission slip if divorce is a necessity. The problem was it was being taught that it wasn't if, it was when. When divorce is a necessity, and Jesus comes to correct that. See, back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, the, the reason why it became when is because there's a word in there that got twisted. A word in there that got misinterpreted. And it was really kind of left for interpretation for many people. It's found here, and I'm going to read the verse for you again. It says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. That was the grounds for divorce. Well, that something indecent had two different interpretations. Really, there was multiple, but there was two big camps. Rabbis taught either a conservative view or a more liberal view. The conservative you said this word indecent means sexually immoral. If your wife has been sexually immoral, you can write her a, you can. You don't have to. You can write her a certificate of divorce. The other camp, the more liberal one said, if there's anything you don't like about her, then you can write her a permission slip to get gone. When you stop and think about that, only if she's sexually immoral or if it's the way that she looks, the way that she cooks, the way that she talks, the way that she snores, the way that she, the list was long. Which camp do you think people are going to fall into? The truth of the matter is, is that culture tends to lean towards the less restrictive, more permissive. And so that's where we see most men follow that liberal thinking, which open up the door to make divorce normal. Which opened up the door to objectify women. They were property. They were merely a servant that could be let go of when they were no longer good for the man. The results? Well, I'll use some buzzwords. Some words you hear a lot today, but these actually are a bit more legit. Oppression. Injustice and suffering. Women were used and abused and then cast aside. They became outcasts. They were left literally to fend for themselves because they were no longer wanted. Well, you know what? When God designed marriage, that was not what he had in mind. And that's not what Moses had in mind even when he gave permission to do it. It had been twisted and the bar had been lowered. Again, the root issue, the heart. The heart was and is the problem. The selfish, darkened heart had an unhealthy view of marriage. They were looking at marriage through this weird, self-centered lens. And the attitude, if, if you want to paint with a broad brush, marriage is great as long as it goes my way. I think we kind of still feel that way. But Jesus wanted them to understand that every legitimate marriage is an act of God. It is a God-forged union where two become one. The one plus one equals one. He says, guys, you died to yourselves. You died to your individual desires, and you are sinking your life with another. I'll quote one of my favorite movies growing up. Rocky talking to Adrian as he's preparing to propose to her. He says, hey you got gaps. I got gaps. We fill each other's gaps. That's the mentality of marriage. We have gaps. And again, reminding it is an act of God we didn't start it so we are not free to just end it see God's design for marriage has always been and will always be about the merger it will always be about the unity about the closeness about the addition about the dependence about the devotion not about divorce And I know that's hard to hear and I know that's even hard to say. But Jesus wanted to uphold the dignity of marriage that's found in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two and not these weird interpretations and misinterpretations that the Pharisees had from Deuteronomy 24. So what he does is he brings everything back around and he says, I want you to see the proper view of marriage. That is what I want you to see. And here's the thing just like us in most situations when you get called out what is your immediate response it's humility right it's you're right i I was wrong no is i'm going to make you look bad and i'm going to create division so i can still feel good about myself and even potentially get you to look like the bad guy even though you're not and we see that playing itself out the pharisees do the same thing and i've already mentioned in there's two passages, Matthew 19, Mark 10, that expand on these two verses of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And they go deeper into detail, and really most scholars believe that, that Matthew 19 and Mark 10 are the same passages, same, uh, same instance, same, same time frame, same teachings. So what I want to do is I actually want to, I know that, that Pastor Bruce read Matthew 19. I'm going to dive into Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 10, just a little bit deeper. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to go to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be basically reading between 1 and 12 today. And we're going to break it down just a little bit more because I want you to see how Jesus brings the conversation back around, the proper heart and proper heart perspective on marriage. This is what it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. It says, He set out from there and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan then the crowds converged on him again as was his custom he taught them again and I just want to pause right there just for a second because I love that word again people are hungry for the truth they converged on him again because he is feeding them the truth and he taught them again because they were hungry for the truth people today are hungry for the truth just like Bruce said right up front he said man when was the last time you shared the truth with somebody People are hungry for the truth. Let's stop withholding it from them. We've got to share it with them. Verse 2 says, some Pharisees came to test him. We can pause right there. Those who don't like the truth, test the truth. They wanted to make him look bad. They wanted to paint him into a corner. They maybe wanted to cause him to have some divisiveness, at least in his answer, because if that divisiveness came from his answer, there'd be divisiveness in his camp. So if you want divisiveness, you ask a divisive question. The question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, what did Moses command you? We've already talked about Deuteronomy 24. It was not a command. But they've been teaching it as a command. So Jesus says, I'm going to use your words against you. Of course, they answer that question. And they answer that question in verse 4. It says, they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of of your heart. There's that heart issue again. When you look at Deuteronomy 24 in context, it's clear that the point of passage is not to validate divorce. But instead, the purpose of the passage was actually to ban men from using women and abusing women. To keep them from divorcing and then trying to remarry the woman they already divorced. Then Jesus makes clear that God through Moses only allow divorce because of man's hardness of heart. Th- that's where we find ourselves. Divorce is not a legitimate solution to marriage problems. Just to let you know that. It's not a solution to sin. You no, know, divorce is due to sin. And we have to see that. And looking at De- Deuteronomy 24 in context, we see that divorce isn't allowed for the purpose just to break the marriage covenant. That's not its purpose. This policy of certificate is at best, reluctant permission. Reluctant permission. Kind of a form of divine concession because of human weakness. He says, I see your hard heart and I'm going to give you this concession. But it can't be taken as divine approval as it was being taught by the Pharisees. So what does Jesus do? He takes it back to the beginning. So he lays out God's perfect will for marriage. Let's pick up in verse six. It says, but from the beginning of creation, God. See, divorce was never part of the plan. From the very beginning says you guys have tried to legitimize divorce by misinterpreting Moses. So let's go back further to the beginning. God made them male and female. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. When they were in the house again the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery. Told you Correlating passage, Matthew 19, 10. I love the way that that one wraps up when it says this in Matthew 19, 10. His disciples said to him, if this is a relationship between a man with his wife and it's like this, probably shouldn't get married. Just be easier to not be married. And really, that, what we just talked about is an entire sermon itself. But because we've already touched on it, I'm just going to outline a few of the things that are mentioned in it. The first thing I want you to see is Jesus wants his followers to have a heart for marriage and have a perfect heart for marriage like his heart is for marriage. Here's what God's perfect ideal is. First thing he says is this. It starts off with one man and one woman. I said it. I I shouldn't even have to clarify that. But we live in such a culture and such a day that that has been attacked because If we can attack the institution of marriage, as you will see, as we talk on, it is the perfect perception and and, and really illustration of God and His church. But if we can attack that and lessen it, every legitimate marriage is God's doing. It's His plan. We didn't start it, so we're not free to end it. We didn't construct it, so we can't deconstruct it. It's His What I found with marriage, and I tell every marriage couple, or every time I'm doing premarital counseling, I did a wedding yesterday, is this very very truth. You have one selfish person and another selfish person coming together in a relationship. What's going to happen if God hasn't changed their hearts? That is the truth of the matter. We are selfish people coming together. We need to be worked on by God. He needs to change our hearts to be more like him and he shows us how it looks even in the Old Testament when he's looking at our relationship or his relationship with his people Israel how many times did Israel cheat on God too many times to count how many times did God continue to love them every time He didn't always let it slide but he did continue to love them and was continued to be there for them. Same thing with us because guess what? We cheat on God too. Lastly, we have verses 10 through 12 where the conversation moved back into the house and God warns about those who want to pursue another relationship after divorcing unbiblically that they're living in adultery and that is a, a tough passage. I remember when I was in college, my basketball coach had married a woman and my basketball coach had been divorced. All of the, and they're still married to get, today. I'm still in contact with them. All of her friends refused to talk to her because they believed that she was living in adultery. So this verse can be very taken very seriously. But what is Jesus talking about here? What, what is he trying to, to lay out there? I mean, the disciples are confused. If you're confused, know the disciples are confused because they're, they're literally saying, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? What is it that you're trying to do and he's saying here's the thing rather than viewing divorce as a way to solve your marriage problems we need to see it differently he's saying you guys are actually not jumping out of the frying pan and and getting out of it. you're actually jumping out of the frying pan and getting into the fire you have to be careful with this you can't make it too easy so immediately the disciples say well we probably shouldn't get married then it's impossible and can i tell you something Marriage is pretty difficult in case you didn't know that already on the day of our hoedown on October 23rd uh, that was uh, 25 years ago was when I proposed to Christy I would love to say that the last 25 years have been just marital bliss <laughs> I can say that Christy cannot she, she'll tell you the truth Actually, one of my favorite interviews of all time, I was sitting in on, a friend of mine, Rick Collins, was going to be the executive pastor over at, um, at First Baptist Rio Rancho. And one of the people, we were sitting in one of the Sunday school classes, and one of the people said, so how long have you been married? And he said, 20 happy years. He said, not bad out of 25. And I was like, yeah, I like this guy. But it was an older class, and they didn't think it was funny. The truth of the matter is, th- that is it. We, we struggle in this. It is impossible if we want to try and do it on our own. We need the help of Jesus. We need him. That's why we need a heart change. That's why we have to lay our lives down, like it said in Luke 9.23 and Mark 8.34, which is funny that Mark 8.34 comes right before Mark 10.1 when he starts to lay this out if you want to follow after me you have to lay yourself down you have to die to yourself you have to pick up your cross and follow me daily that is how marriage works that is why we have to flip our thinking honestly thinking about divorce in this way is completely flipped from that passage that i read to you is it not our filters have caused us to think differently though growing up as a child that had been through divorce i don't really like this teaching i don't i mean you might even call it controversial but just because i don't like it doesn't mean that i shouldn't trust it see when we die to ourselves and our self-centered desires we have a less self-centered viewpoint and a self-less god-centered viewpoint and we begin to trust jesus here's a question for you as you think about all of this would you rather test jesus or trust jesus would you rather test Jesus or trust Jesus? Because culture is constantly testing Jesus. They're constantly trying to go against what God wants. Our culture says that marriage and sexuality are a means of self fulfillment, and that is it. God says it differently. He says, I want it to be a means of service and sacrifice and worship. But again, that sounds completely impossible. And in your own way and in your own works, it is impossible. That's why Jesus brings it up here in the Sermon on the Mount. Why else would he make that left at Albuquerque? Why else would he go from the, the, the two uh, of murder and adultery that are found in the Ten Commandments and, and make this switch to go over to teaching from Deuteronomy? Because he says you can't do it without the heart change, that same heart change he had laid out in the Beatitudes. Jesus brings a heart change through death, burial, and resurrection. That's why I asked that question up front what does it mean for us to live a life that good life shaped by the death burial and resurrection of jesus it means we think different it means we live different and it means we love different we have to be different so here's what i want to wrap up with if you don't know jesus and his resurrection power if you've never experienced heart change today is the day see i don't i don't know your past I I don't know what you've been through. I don't know the things that have caused you to see life through different filters, but this is one thing I do know. God is the great redeemer. God is the great redeemer, and he's full of grace, and he's full of mercy, and he stands to forgive you of your past. He stands to forgive you of your present, and he stands to forgive you of your future, and he can redeem anything that is in your past, in your present, and your future. Your past does not define you. You know what does? Jesus does. Jesus does jesus does and if you know that already if you've experienced that already if you live in the light that jesus has changed your heart and now has changed your life i would challenge you to share it to let people know about this amazing god that we serve i know this hasn't been an easy pill to swallow but I thank you for bearing with me as we've gone through it and I pray that God has spoken to you this morning. As a matter of fact, let's do that as we close. Father, thank you again for today and thank you for your words that have been recorded and held on to for thousands of years so that we can study them even today. A topic like this isn't easy because culture has <laughs> trained us in such a way as shaped us in such a way that we see it different. But God, we want to see it from your perspective. We want to see marriage for what it is. We want to hear about marriage for what it is. It is ordained by you to be a perfect illustration of your love for us. Just like it's broken down in Ephesians chapter 5. God, may we live that way. I pray for those in here who are struggling. Maybe they're in the middle of that dysfunctional marriage right now and they're trying to figure out what they need to do. God, you have given us pretty strict instructions on what divorce is supposed to look like, both in Matthew and then Paul in 1 Corinthians as it talks about abandonment. And if God, if that's the case, And as it proceeds, may you get the glory even still in it. But God, we want to see reconciliation because that's what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. You've reconciled us to yourself by sending the perfect sacrifice. If there's people in here that don't know that, may today be the day they find it out. Experience your great redemption, your great love, your great mercy, your great forgiveness. And for those of us in here who've already experienced, help us not to live in the past, the things that maybe we have done or have had done to us, but instead we can live in the now and live in the future knowing that you are who you are, that you will do what you say you're going to do. And we can live and base our lives on that. We pray it in your name. Amen.